Hello and welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. Today, we're talking about how to make indie films with the fantastic Sarah Megan Thomas. She's not only an actress, she's not only a producer, she's not only a screenwriter, she is in fact all three of those and many more. She wears so many hats on her film sets, it's incredible. She finds the finance, she finds crew, she works with some amazing people. Uh, it is a joy to chat to her. Uh, we talked about screenwriting and how you should write what you know. We talked about casting and getting names to star in your indie films. We talk about fundraising and how you can raise money for your features as well. We talk about budgeting, dealing with rejections, working with a director as a producer and actor and wearing many hats on a film set. Uh, And we talk about her latest film, Liberté, A Call to Spy, which, if you're in Canada, is at the Whistler Film Festival on December the 6th. She wrote the script, uh, plays World War II spy Virginia Hall, and she produced the film. Her first feature was Backwards, uh, which she wrote and starred James Van Der Beek. Her second feature was Equity, which also starred Anna Gunn and James Purefoy. And her latest feature film, Liberté, A Call to Spy, stars Stanakatic, Radhika Apte and Linus Roach. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a producer, uh, writer and director. And recently I produced a horror comedy, A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, which Staten and Poppy will be appearing on this podcast in the new year because the film, A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, will be released on January the 13th around the world. And we're super excited. Um, Yeah, you can see that. I can't wait for you lot to get your hands on it. It's a brilliant dark twisted comedy so we'll be talking about that quite a lot before the release on January the 13th and after I imagine Um, I'm so proud of everyone who was involved in that film worked so hard and finally this one is out I'm also the director of the vampire documentary World of Darkness and the psychological horror feature film The Dare which I've mentioned every podcast Uh, that has its release date of March the 3rd 2020 so much fun so at the moment we're doing all the um, deliverables uh, talking to our uh, sales team and our distributors and I believe it is getting released in the Netherlands and in Belgium and in Luxembourg in December 2019 in the cinemas that's what I've been told I'm waiting this week to find out what is happening and if I'm going over there to remote it to just watch it in the cinema with a paying audience Wow, uh, that will be a joy. Uh, I'll let you know how that goes. And if that happens, I don't know. I've been told it is. So there you go. If you're in the Netherlands, which I know there's so many cool uh, listeners uh, from Holland, then do check it out. See if you can find it. The Dare. Uh, you might have heard me mention it. Um, uh, <laughs> the film stars Richard Brake uh, and Richard Short, who both star in my recently wrapped feature film, Arthur and Merlin, Knights of Camelot. I'm in the edit for that. Right now, today, I've been sat with Oliver Parker, my editor, super editor. And, um, yeah, we've been talking through how we can make it better, well, how we can shape it, because we got all our notes through from our execs, and there were some really cool notes. Um, it's really pleasing to now 
chop that all up, go through it, what works, what doesn't, how we can make it um, a really cool uh, historical action movie. But I'm proud of it. What I think is there's some great performances and I think it looks pretty darn good. Um, And there was a little teaser that was going around AFM and it might have sold in some territories. I don't know how much I can say at the moment. All I know is that it did well at AFM, which is super exciting so I'm very happy um, for everyone involved as well as me Um, the Make Your Film event is on December the 10th it's our sixth one Uh, and normally we we pretty much get a packed out house and this time should be no different so if you're around London on December the 10th come and join us it's pretty much a live podcast myself and Dom Lenoir are there and we're chatting with our guests which so far include Pincushions Deborah Haywood and um, also BAFTA winning Stuart Brennan who made the feature film tomorrow we have one more guest to announce which you should find out about next week but if you're around why not pop down it's in Old Street in London December the 10th 6.30 onwards the networking alone is worth it because it's only a tenner you have nothing to lose it's £10 turn up Say hello, hand out your business cards, buy yourself an ice drink, which you get 10% off at the bar at Theatre Delhi. Anyway, through us, and uh, you can chat to me and Dom and every other cool person that's there. Not saying I'm cool, but I'm cool. Um, the music you are listening to behind this intro is from Music Bed. Now, uh, they're back with us after a little hiatus uh, for sponsoring the show. Now, if you didn't get your free month with music bed then silly you but guess what you can get it now the link is in the show notes all you have to do is when you go into the end point when you're saying you're buying it and you just put in the promo code filmmakers pod in capitals links to all that will be in the show notes but why do i like music bed because you have such an incredible array of music everything in there I need if I, usually when I've been doing the podcast for the past two years I literally struggle going through YouTube whatever I can find to try and get some music that I can play underneath the intro that kind of fits the episode all I have to do on Musicbed is type in this kind of music oh I want something happy I want something from World War 2 I want something that's epic I want something theatrical or musical or whatever Musicbed has it all it has it all. So all you've got to do is go to musicbed.com and go get it. Get it for the month. And get it free and you'll realise how great it is and you can use it. Um, you're also giving you 20% off a single song purchase if you like as well. Use the same promo code for that. Uh, you get unlimited music. I've been using it so much. I love it. Uh, they've got thousands of artists on there, hundreds, millions, whatever you want. Um, go to it, musicbed.com. Thank you for sponsoring this week's episode. And if you'd be so kind... As to just check them out. That's really cool by me. Also, if you like this podcast, tell your mates. Help us grow. Help us get out there. And if you know someone who you think should be on this podcast, get in touch or get them to get in touch. Let me know who they are. Uh, You know, even though we do get a lot of people asking to be on now, I'm always looking for really cool people who just haven't heard about us yet or have a film coming out. Or... If you have a shout out for your crowdfunder or your short or your screening, let us know. Get in touch at Filmmakers Pod on Twitter. We are on Facebook as well, Filmmakers Podcast. Okay, Rain Dance this week are giving you 20% off the Saturday Film School, and that is this December the 7th. Uh, so if you fancy that, it's the Saturday Film School, and you 
can get it for 20% off uh, this Saturday, the 7th of December, from 10am to 5pm. It's at King's College, uh, The Strand, in London, um, near Waterloo Bridge. And you should get yourself down there. If you fancy that, why not? Raindance is ace. They've just had their brilliant Biffa Awards. Um, and you could be involved next year. Go do that film course. Make your film. Get involved. Uh, Elliot there and all the team are just brilliant. Bailey, shout out to you. Um, so, on next week's podcast, next Tuesday's podcast, is the fantastic actor and director Tom Cullen. He starred in Nightfall, he starred in Downton Abbey, and recently he has directed his debut film, Pink Wall, which stars Jay Duplass and Tatiana Maslany, and it is fantastic. We had a brilliant natter, and I can't wait for you lot to listen to that. But without further ado, I think I've done everything. Um, make your film. Have I talked about make your film? Yep, I've done that one. Raindown's done that one. Uh, yep, subscribe to us. Love you all. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking your time to listen to this. Here is this week's podcast with Sarah Megan Thomas and myself. Enjoy. Welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast, Sarah Megan Thomas. Hello, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well indeed. I'm having a good day. It's been nice. I've been chatting with my mate about my documentary today and uh, Dan Richardson and it's been pleasant. It's always nice when you get together and you start talking about a project again. Things move forward. Best part, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Have you just kind of woken up? Are you in LA right now? I'm actually in New York, so I've been to the gym. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much it. it. Saturday's our gym day. I have, um, I'm recovering from a, a ruptured Achilles, which actually is, is an injury Oof. from the movie. And uh, so uh, my gym time is interesting because there's only certain things I can do. I agree with you. Yeah, I've been doing a lot more gym recently and um, it's something I just normally play football and I keep my fitness up that way. But actually, there's a gym just opened up down the road and I went, yeah, go on then. But I, what I find fitness wise for filmmakers is actually vital. I think when you're on set, when you're even prepping stuff, your brain has to be alive. And if you're sat in the room all the time writing your script or trying to make phone calls or trying to make things happen, if you're not fully fit, or as fit as you can be, then I feel it does make a difference. I think it makes you alive. Oh, totally. You know, one of the early tips I got, especially when you're doing filmmaking and you have so many hats, like writer, producer, actor, um, is mm -hmm. to in your downtime, you know, obviously you want to socialize and, and, you know, be friends with the cast, but you also need to find your quiet time. And I would bring a little um, tape recorder of yoga spend half of lunch doing yoga or meditating or something to kind of keep your energy going. It's so important that, isn't it? It really is. Totally. I think it's vital. As a director, you don't get much time to do anything else other than be on set directing. <laughs> but in prep beforehand, I think it's very important that you keep fit. I think it's, I think it makes a big difference. My brain feels on fire and because you're on your feet all the time, you're constantly moving. But as an actor on set, I think it's vital that you keep fit and healthy. Um, otherwise you just, sitting around waiting i think it's important but um obviously you do everything and this is what's interesting about this and obviously the filmmakers podcast uh is all about helping other filmmakers and yeah. indie filmmakers get out there and go and make their films so obviously any uh inspiration or advice is vital and and we'd love it from you for anything that you've 
any tips and bits and stuff like that really help our listeners and and obviously you've had a brilliant career uh, so far um obviously you've got loads more to go as well because it's a, it's a really nice journey you've gone on and obviously we're here to talk about liberty a call to spy and we will and i can't wait because it's a really brilliant film it's very well done it's very well made uh, and you produced it wrote it and starred in it as virginia hall which is um pretty impressive I think it's pretty impressive. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, in terms of general um, filmmaker tips, uh, with all my films, um, I like to start with a, a genre that I think is commercial because I'm I'm always thinking about the art, but I'm also thinking about the sale because the business side of it, you know, if, if you're successful with that, it allows you to keep doing the things you love. So mm. I kind of a genre that I think is popular. And then I look at kind of untold stories within that genre. And that's how I kind of spark new ideas. So, you know, um, my first film, which was with James Vanderbeek, um, you know, it was the first female driven um, rowing rom-com. And then my second film was mm. the first female driven Wall Street movie, Equity. And so with this one, I knew kind of I love spy films. And then where are the ones where we see kind of not just the romance angle, but women being kick ass am i allowed to say that? <laughs> of course you can you can swear <laughs> you can be as honest and open as you like you can go off on tangents if you want i don't care <laughs> swearing no, tangent no, I'll, I'll try and control myself <laughs> but um seeing them be kind of good at their job and and i in the research found these three historical women virginia hall nor nayak khan played by radika apte and um, vera atkins played by stana kadek um and wanted to tell their story it's amazing and it's really interesting that you've you've gone down that route as well from the very beginning gone do you know what i'm going to tell stories for women made by women about women and and really gone to town on them and made three brilliant films backwards obviously was your first film there with james van der beek starring in and yourself and you exec produced produced and wrote it and what a great start but I want to jump back even further than that and even how you even ended up producing because both me and you went to the same drama school in London, drama studio no in London. No way! Um, Wait a minute. Yes, I way. I knew that. Do you know Kit Thacker? Sorry. Of course I know Kit Thacker. <laughs> well, you know, the yeah. first um, play I ever did in New York City, Kit Thacker from uh, drama studio London was one of my teachers and he had written this genius um, gender reverse loves labor's lost that we did in drama school. I and remember we, him um, talking about that. Yeah, we yeah. took it to New York where it was very successful. We marketed it as uh, Sex in the City meets Shakespeare, and that was my first foray into kind of producing and acting together. Um, and that's where I really started to learn how to do it. But that was that was Kit's genius idea. That is fantastic. I really like that. Um, what was it about the producing straight away that made you say, okay, I want to carry on this? Because a lot of actors, when they're starting out acting, go, I don't want to do that because it might get in the way. Uh, I know I did. I put on plays and wrote plays and we put them on all over London. And it was like my way in. I was like, I'm going to write them if no one else is for me. If no one's going to give me a job, I'm going to make it happen myself. And you did exactly the same. Right. You, you kind of went, yeah, all right, I'm going to produce this. Yeah, my um, first jobs out of like drama school were a lot of commercials. Like I was the spokeswoman for the New York Times. I did soap operas, Guiding Light, etc. And it was kind of not mm. fulfilling from you know, uh, an artist perspective. I, I love the journey of creating something from beginning to end. I, I certainly love going and, um, doing the odd job for someone else and just showing up and acting. And that's lots of fun too. But, but the ability to take something from an idea, um, all the way through final product and, and something, a story that hasn't been done before 
is really gratifying. I, I just loved doing it. So you went, did you go straight back to New York then after drama school? Did you go straight back there? I did. And I actually put on wanted to stay in London. I love London, but I didn't find the Brit to marry. <laughs> <laughs> sadly. Yeah, sadly. What a shame. But actually, do you know what? It's, it's kind of good that you did go back because you went back with, um, you know, having a, a good drama school behind you and yeah. uh, the, the sort of New York, LA thing they kind of like that, that British drama school vibe. And you could go in and go, look, I've just done this. I brought a play over. Here I am. And how did it progress from there, from you sort of producing that first play and going, right, how do I continue? Yeah, so I did a couple more plays. um, And then I decided I wanted to uh, try film, which thank God I didn't know what I was doing or I may never have done it. <laughs> I agree with that. Yes. Yeah, if we knew if we knew what we were getting ourselves into, um we might not be doing it. <laughs> just jump in. Just jump in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the best way, you know? That's what I tell filmmakers now. Just jump in. Yeah. Go for it. It's tough as hell, but if you don't jump in with two feet, you're never going to do it and you'll end up being bitter and disappointed by it. But you've got to get out there and do it. And that's what I love with what you did. Is you kind of went, "Yep, I'm just going to go for this. I'm going to make my own work." And brilliant. It's, you know, it's an inspiration for anyone out there. The other tip that I like to say is a piece of advice and everyone has their own path, obviously, and there is no one right path. But I, I chose not to do the short film path first, only because, um, you know, I had produced theater and uh, I really wanted to try a feature. And these days, you know, it is you can make a very affordable feature and it takes so much time to even do a short. So to put all your resources into committing to that feature, which is more sellable as a feature from a financial perspective, um, I think is a good way to at least look at. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think shorts, if you're directing is, is kind of vital to show you can do that. I think as producer, if you're going out there, you can actually go, okay, I've got to just take the bull by the horns here and, and, and do it. Had you not made anything before? Um, you, you Nothing. Made wow. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Tell us about that. Because you wrote it. Tell us about you trying to go out there and get it made and what that experience was like, because I imagine it was just, oh, okay, this is producing. Uh, Talk us through the whole process and of you actually writing something and, and trying to get it made. Yeah. So I owe a lot to my mom who taught me how to write just in general. I was an English major in college. And so I, I had, she was very strict with me on all my English papers. So, so I knew how to write, but I had no idea how to write a screenplay. So I literally mm-hmm. went to, this is back in the day when Barnes and Noble stores were open and I went to Barnes and Nobles and I sat and read pretty much every single um, book you could get your hands on and how to write a script. And then I bought a few. Um, and I started, you know, the way most people do with a story kind of close to home. Um, you know, I was a rower in high school and college and, and a woman that I rode with at Williams, um, she was the number one alternate for the Olympics. I think it was Sydney at the time. Wow. Okay. And, yeah. And she left college and she went to train. And I remember thinking, wow, that's such a huge accomplishment to be the number one alternate for the Olympics. But it's also for her a big disappointment. Like she'd taken time off her whole life and didn't achieve the goal. Um, and so I thought I've never seen that story and I've never seen a rowing story on film. Um, and so I, you know, sat down and started to write that type of story. And I wanted to do kind of a bend it like Beckham, you know, PG story that young girls could see and look up to, because I also felt like there weren't um, or aren't still enough of those kind of 
very clean, wholesome um, films about, you know, achieving a goal and inspiration. Absolutely. So you sat down and went, okay, I'm going to, just did you did you know your kind of basic story did you know obviously from you, you know your friend there did you know how you wanted to put that together how did you even start to say okay how do I write this screenplay as an actual screenplay well I started with an outline and and I think you know my friend was the genesis for the idea but it wasn't um you know I didn't follow her story or her life it was really the idea of a woman who is turning 30 and hasn't achieved her dream in the way she wants to, and now has to take a step backwards out of the title to rediscover what she's going to do with her life. Um, and she does that through teaching and teaching young girls how to row. So I just, you know, like, as if you're telling any story, I just plot pointed where I wanted to go with it. And then I sat down and wrote, and then I did a lot of readings with my actor friends, which it's very useful to have amazing friends who are actors. And, you know, asked for real feedback and then, you know, got brutal feedback. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then on the, on the fundraising side at the same time, and this is something that I think, you know, more filmmakers should be talking about. I wrote a business plan, like a 30 page business plan about why this movie made sense to make about, yes, it's a high risk investment, but these are the ways we can make money. And so at the same time I went out and, and it goes back to what I was saying originally about finding that genre that's commercial, that people will want to invest in because I have to find investors to invest in this, you know, um, so mm-hmm. to the rowing community, I Googled like prominent rowers and I wrote cold letters and, you know, out of a hundred letters, maybe one person gave me a meeting and maybe they invested and maybe they didn't, but then they introduced me to other rowers who were successful and, and had the money to say, you know what, we want to see this on screen. We'll give you some money. And, and that, that's how I built the investor community. That's incredible. I really like that. And I think it's very important what your story is uh, that you find, if you're looking for money, to find it within that group. Like with the documentary I was talking about earlier, Food for Thought, we went out to that community of, of vegans and animal lovers who wanted to see this on screen. And we targeted them. We knew that that was our main aim. And, and you did the same here. And you really went to town. Um, talk about your 30-page, uh, we'd call it an investment memorandum in this country, an IM, which yeah. sort of basically sets out, okay, this is what the film's about, but this is how you can make your money back. This is uh, what the steps are for that, the waterfall. Did you have everything like that in there? You know, I had some things. I What I didn't do, and I, and I sometimes see a lot of, is like I didn't compare it to Blair Witch, you know, in terms of like, <laughs> that's not relevant. Yeah, this could make billions. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right, and I think yeah. people respect that. I, I've always gone to people and said, you know, I, I use the comps relevant to the film, specifically relevant to the film, and I use indie comps. I don't use studio comps. Um But I also, you know, am always very honest with my investors. I I say to all my investors, you know, you can lose all your money and I can't go to, I can't go to sleep at night unless you know that you could lose all your money. Um, uh, and you're doing this for many reasons. And there are many, I also do perks. There are many perks that come with being an investor at certain levels. You know, you come to set, you have lunch with the cast, all kinds of things to make it a piece of art. 
um, an experience mm. so that some of the money comes back, but if all of it doesn't come back, um, you know, you retain those investors and, you know, equity did make a big profit at Sundance. So that was wonderful. And then that was the success success story. Um, but you don't always have the success story and I've been able to retain investors through all the movies. And I think that should always be the goal. Yes, totally agree. I love that. That's really, uh, again, just clever. And I think, we shouldn't just set out to make a film and we should look at the business side of it and say, well, okay, it's great to go and set out to make a film, but think about the long term, right? Think about the end goal. What are we trying to achieve here? And obviously our investors, we want to raise the money back so that they potentially might put into the next film, which could be bigger with bigger names or bigger stars or whatever, which helps you grow and keep being a filmmaker, which is, I imagine, what you love to do. Yeah, absolutely. So this is great. This is good. So how did you even know how to write uh, an investment memorandum and I am, how did you know to even set that up? Had you been to some courses, some classes? Had you listened to the filmmakers podcast, <laughs> which exactly. didn't yes, obviously exist then? Filmmakers podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you know? How did you even think to do that? Was, did you have um, some uh, a producer friend of yours who knew that this is what to do? Or did you just were clever? I mean, it was just you as the producer as well, which is just incredible. Well, I mean, I think my sister went to business school um, at Columbia. So, you know, I was able to use her as a resource as I was writing it. Um, I also, you know, obviously um, knew that it was something that you needed. Uh, and I had many people that I trust kind of read it and give feedback writing before you kind of take it out into the world. Um, but I think it goes back to just the preparation that goes into that and making sure that it's professional is important because if investors see that they see how you're going to treat the film and how you're going to treat their money it took me quite a long time to realize that i needed a really strong uh i am you know a package uh i would always leave it to other people to be honest I was, I was always a bit more creative i was kind of like oh someone else can do that but actually if you know about that stuff if you know about the business side and um, how the money could come back to the investors, then you're in a much better place because you're the one pitching the film to people. You're the one saying, here's how you can make your money. And then suddenly you go, well, I actually don't know. I'm going to pass you on to my friend who's going to tell you about it. Uh, but they're not here right now. They're somewhere else. And, you know, because you meet them in a bar or meet them wherever you meet them uh, in, the, in the gym. Um, and you've got to know about your investment you've got to know about your film inside out and yeah that's that's it's it's a clever thing to do straight away to know how to do that um so with with backwards then obviously you've got james van der beek on board as well which is you know it's just great because now you've got a name in your film and you've got a great director as well who'd made feature films before as your first feature how did you go about doing that as well yeah you know i think a little luck uh, is involved in everything hard work and luck and things fall into place like you know, everyone knows it's really, really tough to make a film. And we did not have a cast in place um, maybe six weeks before shooting. Uh, you know, obviously you have backups, but you don't, we didn't have kind of James Vanderbeek um, level talent. And and I'm a firm believer, and again, this is just the way I make films of like setting a date and saying we're shooting in June X, Y, or Z. Um, and maybe that pushes to August, but it certainly doesn't push a year. And what that does do is as you get down to the wire, if you can stomach it, um, people's schedules open up and stars and they understand that you're going to pay them and you have the money to put 
it in escrow and they have the time and they like the project and they jump on board versus the other way, which is equally as valid, just different is if you attach people, um, you know, really they can back out if something bigger comes along the way and then, then your film can just get pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. So, so my business model is just keeping the budget low enough where I need a name, um, because unfortunately, uh, that is that is the business w- with so much content out there. But I don't need George Clooney. Yeah, absolutely. And James Vanderbeek came on board and was so nice. I mean, honestly, I you know to put your trust in a. I mean, I had not starred. I had starred in a feature film before that was somebody else's, but I hadn't starred in one that I was doing myself. And to believe in me um, when many other people didn't, you know, says something about his character. Yeah, it does. Uh, that's really nice. And I imagine that that whole experience must have been quite overwhelming. Um, can you talk about how you felt on set? Did you have, uh, you know, essentially it's, you've now found the investors, you've set this project up and now, you know, if something goes wrong, did you feel that full on weight over your shoulders um, in terms of the, the whole project? How did it, how did it feel? Yeah, I mean, I think things always go wrong on set. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're lying. Mm -hmm. Um, There's Mm -hmm. always problems in an indie film where you don't have enough money to, you know, I had to fundraise all the way through the shoot um, because, you know, things happen and you need more hours, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And and there certainly were days where you just don't know how you're going to do it. But that's the importance of bringing on a great team. You know, uh, I I, I purposefully at this, I definitely want to direct. In fact, I may direct my next film, but I, I wouldn't star in in that scenario because I I think Mm -hmm. the ability from my standpoint to to direct, write, produce and star would just be one, one thing too many. And when you bring on, um, and that's just me, but when you bring on a team, um, you have the ability to lean on people and have other creative ideas. And, And it's, it's much like the jaws factor. Like, you know, they, the, I don't know if you know this story, but Jaw with Jaws, like they didn't have, I forget if it was they didn't have the money or the machine broke, but anyway, it wasn't intentional originally to not have Jaws. And so mm. having the music makes the whole film. So I think a lot of the time with indie films, not having the money can lead to more creative and sometimes better ideas anyway. It does seem to work that way. It was actually um, Bruce, the shark that didn't work. So they didn't film it. So (laughs) in the edit on Jaws, they were like, well, we don't see the shark until this time. And he went and spoke to his wonderful composer, John Williams, who said, well, actually, I'll make the shark with a sound. And suddenly the film, you know, became what it was by you didn't see the shark, but you heard the sound of the shark, you know, the duh, duh. and that's why that film yeah, did so well in the end. And, and again, like you exactly said, it was a mistake. He was filming Bruce the shark, but it kept breaking. So in the end, they didn't film him because he wasn't working properly. Uh, and what a wonderful mistake. You know, now looking back, that must have been for Mr. Spielberg and thinking, well, yeah, at the time I thought my life was over. But actually, in the big scheme of things, look what's look what's happened. Um, And I love that within the filmmaking world. And I I imagine rowing uh, and filming people rowing can't be easy anyway. I imagine there's, you know, I've just been working with horses on um, my King Arthur project. And that was difficult. Yeah. it's just why would they want to do what you want them to do with new actors sat on them? You know what I mean? I said new actors, new people sat on them were actors. They're like, well, I don't need you on my back. Thank you. Um, 
and it's that's difficult. I so to, let me talk through the the rowing side of it then on on that film on backwards was how was the shooting of it? How did you plan it? You was the the lead producer and starring in it. And and this is I think this is what's really inspiring for our filmmakers for listening. Why I'm asking you on this because it's the first one, which is sometimes the most magical, but also the hardest one because you're new to everything. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners are new to this, and they want to know how you actually got through that. So what was the day to day? process within you as a producer and like you said you were making phone calls and you're still trying to raise the money but yet you're starring in this movie as well yeah I think what's so important is um and it goes back to the original concept coming up with something where you have a network that will support you so to answer your question like with rowing I was a rower um you know one of our co-producers Tony Schneider um who's also an investor was big in the rowing community in Philadelphia which is where I grew up I was able to get um, not only the tax credit in Philadelphia, but Boathouse Row in Philadelphia to open up their doors and essentially give me the boats and for free, basically, and the oars. Wow. And yeah. we train our actors um, basically for free. And what we did, the challenge was the casting of the two high school girls because rowing is not a sport you can like just pick up quickly. You guys in the UK know, like you'll flip over. Yeah, but and totally. Over. Yeah, a bit like horse riding. Right. Yeah, you, you can't just, right. yeah, you can't just horse ride. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, what we did is we hired one actress uh, and taught her to row and we hired one rower and taught her to act. And I think the balance um, really worked for that film. But even like when you're talking about Liberté, which is like kind of a low budget, but epic World War II film, I had to use resources in the same way. So we still shot some of the film in Philadelphia and got the tax credit for London. And there was mm -hmm. a home called Ardrossin, um, which is, um, an exact replica in Philadelphia of the stately homes in Edinburgh, I mean, Scotland, where these spies trained. And it was like a museum that was fully furnished with period furniture. And they let us shoot there for 10 or 11 days. So what that did wow. is took out the furnishing component of um, a World War II feature. So, so finding ways like that to put um, the money in the people and somehow get the production value on screen through in kind and support. I think that, like you say, it's a, sometimes about asking and about who you know uh, and just going out there and saying, look, we're making this film. Would you let us use your shop for a while or your, like you say, your rowing place or some of your oars? It, you know, that makes a huge difference when someone says yes and we'll give you a thank you. It's only afterwards they realize what they let themselves in for <laughs> when you take over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, about that. There's about 30 or 50 people about to descend on your uh, lovely little shop. I hope you don't mind too much. Um, well, we got my parents' house for backwards and uh, they said never again. <laughs> yes, there you go. And that's it. And then if you need the pickups, that's why you've got to be nice. If there is issues on the day, if you, God forbid, you have to go back and do another shop there. Uh, you've really just got to hope that you didn't piss them off too much that they'll let you do one little shop pickup. Uh, and obviously, if you and your parents, yeah. I imagine that wouldn't have been a problem but if it's a shopkeeper uh just goes no you're not coming back then you do have an issue um so okay how did you then sell backwards um from there how did you get that out into the marketplace how did you manage to release it did you know what you're doing beforehand as in you know distribution and getting it out to a, an actual audience yeah, I mean, for, for Backwards, it was finding the right sales agent. Um, that was a lower-budgeted film. So what we did is um, we did a targeted theatrical uh, in the U.S., and then um, 
we did kind of uh, iTunes, uh, sold to airplanes, you know, sold to Phase Four, which I think is now E1. Um, did DVDs mm-hmm. in Walmart, so it was very much uh, cut and pasted, I guess is the word I'll say, in terms of different distributors with equity, um, we sold all rights to Sony Pictures Classics at Sundance, which is a much easier route <laughs> uh, yes. to go. Let them deal with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how, how did you do that? How did you know to do that then? How did you, with Backwards, how did you actually go about going, right, let's get it into Walmart. Let's get it onto cinema screens. What did you do? I think the first step was bringing on board uh an entertainment lawyer and a sales agent because they really have the contacts at first. Like now you don't necessarily, like if you've done a couple films, you can do it yourself. But for the first film, you don't have the contacts. Like iTunes isn't going to like answer your call. Um, so the first step was just submitting to a lot of um, sales agents, finding the right one. And then that person, you know, basically helps secure the sales. It's kind of nice when you do have that sales company on board who really, care about your film and they go look here's what we're going to do with it and you it's such a nice feeling that someone wants your film <laughs> they'd like it and you've you've passed the mustard it's it's yeah it must have been a great feeling for you as your first feature not only starring in it um, but wrote it exec produced it and produced it um it, it, that must have been pretty impressive and must have felt good yeah, you know, there's so much there's so much work that goes into any feature. I think it's a little mini miracle when any feature makes it out into the world. And um, you know, uh, the world has gotten a little bit, you know, with social media, a little bit critical of of lots of things. And I think that we should just um, step back and appreciate that that the art was made and, and made it there. Um, mm-hmm. it is. I agree. Yeah, I think it's vital that we do that. Sometimes we get bogged down in the uh the minutiae of oh my god oh my god i've got to get the next one or this is a problem but actually sit back and go actually i made a feature that's pretty impressive it's very hard to do difficult to get them out there get them seen and it's a big thing um and not many people go on to make their second feature i think i heard a stat yesterday from johnny grant my co-writer on the dare um and he said 98 percent of screenwriters never get a film out there Wow. Ever. Doesn't get, don't get a film made. 98%. I don't know where that stat comes from in terms of what just everyone puts their hand up and says, I'm a screenwriter. Maybe. But that stat came out that 98% of screenwriters never get a film released. That's scary. That's Which means depressing. if you. <laughs> it, it really is. Yeah. It really is. So you're already the 2%. And then um, to make another film, to make a second film, I think it's 95% of people who make a first film don't make a second film. It goes down for women filmmakers. That's going up at the moment, but it was really low. Um, and you've made three. Um, so was equity a little bit, I say, easier? Uh, by no means is anything ever easy. But obviously with equity, your second feature, which you also wrote, uh, starred in and produced, um, and which stars the fantastic Anna Gunn and the wonderful James Purefoy. But how did that come about then? How did you think, right, okay, like you said, you wanted to write something again that was um, women-based and the women, wall, women on Wall Street. Um, that must have been an interesting journey to then from um, backwards to get equity up and running. What was the process? Yeah, so um, again, with, uh, equity, I, I tried to take a world that I kind of knew. I mean, I didn't know Wall Street specifically, but my uh, husband worked at Lehman Brothers, in fact, all the way till the end when it went under um, on our honeymoon. But that's that's a story for another day. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I'd seen at kind of work parties, uh, all men and one or two women. Um, and the women that I had met socially 
didn't match up with the women in The Wolf of Wall Street. Or, and by the way, I, I adore Wall Street films. So then I just started Googling and I was like, oh my God, like no one's ever made a female-driven Wall Street movie, which is crazy. So um, again, I did a very similar thing that I did with um, Backwards. My husband like wouldn't help me because obviously it's a, it's a work conflict. So I had to just start writing cold letters. I wrote a letter to... Um, CEO of Morgan Stanley and cause he was a rower and I sent him a copy of backwards and said, will you take a meeting? I just want introductions to kind of women on wall street. He actually took that meeting and he made an introduction to X who makes an introduction to Y who makes an introduction to Z till we found, um, uh, our executive producer who kind of, um, not only invested, but came on board and, and, you know, had her friends invest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that was kind of the genesis of equity. And then, Goldman Sachs actually opened up their doors, which was incredible, and um, let us kind of, uh, for a day, look around and interview women, et cetera, because what we were pitching to Wall Street, hopefully that happened, is we're going to tell an accurate depiction of life on Wall Street, and we're not going to demonize Wall Street as a whole, as an industry. We're just going to, you know, show a real story about women. Which you have done, and and very successfully. Um so uh, again, the same process. Did you go about writing it? Now you've learned from your first film. Was there anything you brought on to this second film that you'd learned from that? Yeah. So with Equity, I did the story, and then I actually hired someone I knew from the theater world to write the screenplay. So, so the screenplays that I wrote were um, Backwards and Liberté, called a spy. And with Equity, I did the story and the idea, and I felt like, um, given the experience of how much work it was with backwards and knowing that this would be a slightly bigger budget in terms of fundraising, et cetera, I brought on board a really talented um, screenwriter named Amy Fox, who, uh, you know, um, had written a play that I was in, et cetera. And so she took over the actual script duties. Amazing. Amazing. You talked there about um, fundraising again. Uh, now, this time, did you need to fundraise as much uh, in terms of you personally going out there? Or now you've got these, this wonderful exec producer on. And um, did that make a difference in terms of, look, we've already done a film. It's successful. Now I've got this team on. Um, was, was that slightly easier? I think fundraising is really hard. It's been really hard for all my films, even after having financial success. Like with Liberté, called a spy, we had some investors come back on board and some investors, you know, invested in equity because they wanted a female-driven Wall Street movie. So investing in a female-driven spy movie didn't, like, light their hearts up. You know what I mean? So it's always really hard. Um, our exec producer opened doors um, for sure, but we had to do the same thing. Business plans, meetings, you know, I personally am very hands-on on, on all the fundraising. Um, and it doesn't stop with accepting a check. You have to do investor updates. You have to, um, all the way through, I think it's very important to keep your investors involved if if you want to kind of keep going after your first film. Mm, yeah, I agree. I think it's, uh, what, what I seem to have found is that they become your champions if you like if they sort of even if it's a, a kickstarter or an indiegogo or a crowdfunder whatever you're you're setting up if you set that up in the right way and you write to them in the right way they will follow you maybe for the rest of your lives and chip in here and there because they're invested in you now Absolutely. they like you and they like what you're standing for and actually they might not invest in the next one but maybe they may invest in the next one or the next one after that because they're still following you and your career and they believe in you and I kind of like that. 
I do that with other people as well. If I've put something into one of their films or help them on their film, I want to see them grow and I'll very much help them again on the next one. So it, it's vital that you you um, look after your relationships, uh, should I say, that you know investors and, and money people and producers and talent and screenwriters you meet along the way is just keep them on board they they're part of you and part of your world and you know you if they've made something with totally. you and you brought up like the most important point which is they invest in you yeah i think that's really, really yes true. yes and they can also help with the release like you know getting uh, access to a whole new network of contacts of friends etc people to show up at the theaters you know um it's really important i think so too um so great equity you got out there you got sony classics which is amazing uh that must have been a nice moment when you did you do a screening for them and they went yeah yeah we'll have this we love it you know it was a classic uh sundance moment where um we didn't get a good screening time we were in competition but our but our first screening at sundance was like the tuesday after sundance opens and kind of everyone knows you want to screen um opening weekend and get the bids going so CAA, Mm -hmm. who was representing the film on the sales side, um, CAA hosted a, uh, what do you call it? Sales screening in advance, like Friday, Saturday. And we literally got a call. It was like 11 p.m. at night. I believe it was now like Sunday night going into our press days. And we're on the phone with our, Alicia was in my bed. We were on the phone with our entertainment lawyer all through the night, closing the deal before the first screening with Sony Classics. So it was really one of those um, high intensity, but but one page. <laughs> Had you personally put it into Sundance? Had you done that? Yeah, we did. So, so this is, a, you know, I I actually wrote Trevor, who was is amazing and, and is no longer at Sundance, a cold email and asked if he'd meet with me very early on, um, which he did. Mm-hmm. And we had coffee and... Um, because I didn't know anyone at Sundance at the time. And um, that at least put it on the radar, which I think is very important. Um, you know, and I was able to keep updating him, you know, not annoyingly, but once in a while with uh, updates that the film was going in. And and then we just got the call. Um, but, but we lucked out. I mean, I do think Sundance is a little bit, any film festival is a little bit of a lottery because it depends on who watches the film first. And if that person you know, connects to your material. So, um, you know, I, I feel very grateful for that, but I also understand that, you know, I'm sure there were many films that didn't get into Sundance that, that year that were frankly equally as good. The film festival lottery is a great way to say it. And that first person who the first festival you put it in loves it. All the other festivals then kind of want it. It's that weird sort of roller coaster. And if that first festival goes, yeah, no, it wasn't for me, or we've got a film similar, you then don't go on that roller coaster. Sometimes it's a, it's a very weird um, place to be as a filmmaker, and that rejection is really hard to take. I take it you've gone through quite a few rejections. Oh yeah, everybody has. I mean, I think you need a good outlet, like a yoga class or a bottle of wine, or you have to you, know, you have to leave twenty four hours in between a rejection to recover yourself um, in whatever way works for you. But rejections are all the time, and and for my actor friends out there, I mean, the best thing for my acting career was to sit on the other side um, and hold auditions as a producer because it is very freeing to see, you know, so many talented people come in the room or send tapes and you're casting a role that has to go a certain way for a business decision that has absolutely 
absolutely mm. nothing to do with the person or, or the talent. And it's hard when you're just the actor there auditioning to not be like, oh, I gave a crappy audition or whatever. Or worse, you gave a brilliant audition. Um, you know, you're like, I actually nailed that. They felt it was brilliant. Whatever it was, you're crying in the room and everyone's like, oh my God, you, that was fantastic. And you still don't get the role. Right. It can be heartbreaking. It can be really tough dealing with that. But what I really like about what you said there was as soon as you're on the other side of the table, you realize, ah, it's not always about that. There's quite a lot of other things you have to go through. And we've all got to agree on that person. And God forbid someone in the room behind that table used to go out with someone who looked just like you or doesn't like the sound of your voice or the way your hair moves. Well, you're now not going to get the role. And it only takes one person on the panel to, to knock that out. And the more you realize that, you go, oh, oh okay, it's not about me. And you kind of only learn that from being on the other side of the table. Absolutely. Did that help you become uh, a better actress in any way? Do you think, ah, okay, going into the room, I'll bring this to it next time you went forward for auditions? I think that what has made me a better actress is sitting in the edit room. Um, I'm very hands-on. I always have final cut of all my films. I think it's very important for producers to do that only because, I mean, unless you're hiring Steven Spielberg as a director, but, um, you know, you owe the film to your investors at the end of the day. That's my theory anyway, but some people don't have that theory. So if you don't have final cut and, and somewhere down the line, you know, artistic visions de divulge, what, what's the word I'm looking for? See, it's Saturday, you know, divert, divulge, whatever, uh, <laughs> I, you know, you want to make the, the best decision for the financial future of the film. Um, whether that's running town, like you get mm. a film that's way too long and, you know, it's harder to sell a movie as an independent filmmaker if your movie's over two hours. That's an example I'm trying to, to give you. But anyway, yeah. as an actress sitting in the edit room and seeing how things come together and seeing how it's helpful to provide um, different takes and different options, the editor can always speed you up. Those kinds of little tips are very mm -hmm. helpful for an actor to see. I think that's great advice and really important if actors can jump in on the edit. It's tough at first to watch yourself, you know, and go, oh, wow, why didn't they use that take or why? And, you know, to sit there quietly at the back. But it's hugely important continuity wise that you do hit your mark. So we can go cut to the wide at that point. Because um, there's nothing worse than when you go, oh, God, we can't cut to the wide because they're turned the wrong way at that point. Or there's this, that and the other. And it's vital as for actors to see that and actually go, I have given something different in that performance. They can cut to that and use that at a different part of the scene, but it still works. Really? And how we, how we as filmmakers can manipulate an actor's performance in the edit room totally to be thinking, a totally different thing to potentially what they were thinking or using that and going further with it from maybe even a, a part of the take that was before the act and you were even rolling. Um, and sometimes it was just a look up or whatever it was. And you just take that because you needed it because you only had one take for that scene because you had no time. Totally. Um, but the more actors can see that, the better, the better uh, they can be because you can learn from it. Um, I always say that all actors should go out and make their own short films constantly. And that's why it's great that you've done that, not shorts, but do you know what I mean? you've gone out and gone and made features and you've learned from totally. it, which is incredible. I also think editors are like the unsung heroes. I think they are the final shape of the movie and I think they <laughs> are gods. And I will say that, um, you know, with all my films, I usually end up saving extra money for the editor and, and try and get an editor who's above, um, 
you know, above the pay grade of what the budget of your film is, if that makes sense. So with Liberté, I called a spy. Um, we overspent on the editor and we hired Paul Tothill, who is a genius British BAFTA nominated director who did Atonement um, and Pride and Pride mm-hmm. here nightly. And Hannah, Hannah, amazing films. Yes. And we knew that it's really hard to do a three a three hander in a film in that time allotment. And and knowing that just having the added experience that comes with an editor who's um, been in the business for such a long time, you know, the film would not be what it is without him. I agree. I think they are the unsung heroes, and they do shape a film so incredibly well you get a good editor wow your film is going to raise up massively and it makes a huge difference um i think it's uh, people do seem to overlook that and go oh we'll find an editor don't worry about it but i think it's really important that they understand your film they're on board from the beginning they want to do it or you know at least they they love what you're doing yeah i think that's great advice save a bit of money for the editor um very clever so let's talk about liberté a call to spy would you mind Telling everyone the story. Fantastic. Um, Yeah, it is basically the first feature on three diverse and famous female spies in Churchill's secret army. Uh, It's essentially the hidden figures of the spy world. Um, And and these historical women actually happen to be all over the news now. They are uh, Vera Atkins, who uh, James Bond fans out there. She is the inspiration for Miss Moneypenny character. Um, Mm -hmm. And she is the recruiter, basically, in charge of finding female spies to spy in occupied France in 1941, when um, at the time America wasn't in the war and the war was being lost. And the British SOE, a spy agency, decided to send in women as an experiment because they thought they would be more inconspicuous. And then the film follows two of the female um, spies she selected. Virginia Hall, which is the character I play, who was an American um, with a wooden leg, incidentally, uh, who became the first female field agent and and was very successful at organizing the spy network in Lyon. Um, She became the spy the Nazis dubbed the most uh, dangerous of all and the first woman to work for the CIA after the war. And Noor Nayat Khan, who's played by the amazing Indian actress Radhika Apte, who's just nominated for an international Emmy. And Noor, yeah, and Noor is um, the first female wireless operator sent into France. Uh, she was a Muslim pacifist, but also a British citizen and had to overcome her feelings uh, about violence to join the war effort. Amazing. It is a really fantastic Wonderful independent film, very beautifully made with some amazing performances. And yeah, I'd suggest you seek this out and watch it. It's just delightful. So how did you go about making? Obviously, this is you mentioned earlier that you could um, uh, make where you were not look like or look like Britain, look like, you know, uh, the Scottish uh, Highlands, the Scottish um Gosh, I've lost my words now. Scottish room, um, uh, building. And um, yeah. yeah, tell us how you managed to to make this where you didn't shoot in Britain and uh, and talk, talk it through. Yeah, actually, you know, we looked at shooting in Britain. It was just a little too expensive for us, frankly, because um, I love London. But uh, we went back to my hometown, Philadelphia, where there's a tax credit and, and a lot of resources. Um, and we shot... Philadelphia as London. And the way we were able to do that is Philadelphia is the oldest city in America and it was founded right by the British. So there's a lot of landmark buildings that are historic Mm. in place that are very British. So that was the 
angle for that. Um, and then we looked in the suburbs for kind of the French um, 1941 area and it just never was going to happen. Right. So we shot France, uh, in Budapest, which I highly recommend. Um, we worked, yes. yeah, we worked with a female crew, uh, a company called pioneer who is amazing. Um, Ildigo Kenemy. And I mean, they did King Henry for Netflix. They did portions of the crown. Um, and Budapest today, certain areas of it really look more like 1941 France than areas of France that have been renovated. So that's how we kind of split the shooting. That's amazing. Yeah, I've shot over in uh, Budapest. And yeah, it's it's amazing how those um, European cities can look like, you know, anywhere else um, with a nice bit of dressing. Those buildings totally work. Uh, and even if it's a set building on one of the sound stages there, it still works, you know, and you've got nicer light out there, longer yeah. sun. So you can uh, you can match things and not have to worry too much. Um, makes a big difference. So how did you manage to raise the money for this then? How did you move forward with this project? Because it's um, female-led World War II story. It's not that easy necessarily at the moment to be raising money for something like this. How did you go about it? Well, I was able to get the some initial funds from investors in equity mm -hmm. and backwards. Um, so I had kind of a base there, but this again was a bigger budget than equity. Um, and so I just did the same formula. I went out to kind of like the spy community, um, a lot of asking investors who had invested in, um, several films to, um, open up their network and have their friends take meetings. I also went to the base of my college, Williams college and, um, you know, some people who uh, had the ability to invest again, I would write letters and say, will you at least meet with me? It was about finding people who are likely to take a meeting, even if they're not going to invest. Um, and it did help that equity made a profit. So I was able to say these were the returns on my last film, but everybody knows each film is its own little beast. Mm. Um, and truth mm. be told, I mean, I mentioned the editor and he was more expensive than we had. I mean, I was fundraising all the way up, all the way through the sound mix. We didn't have enough money to complete the sound mix that we needed. Like it never ends. Um, so as long as you have enough money to get it in the can, get it in the can. And, and then I was applying for grants. We want a grant from New York Women Film and Television. It's it's always cobbled together. Yeah, it so is, isn't it? It's kind of, and you go down a certain path and you'll get some investors interested and it'll be great, great, we're moving forward. And now we can go to Castle. Now we can go this. And that investor will suddenly go quiet. <laughs> and you'll be like, ah, yeah, that wasn't as real as we thought. Let's go back there. And then they might come back again or they might come in or one of their friends comes in and yeah, I, I always sort of give the advice and from my side of it is when I'm speaking to an investor is I'm not asking them directly for money. I'm asking them if they know anyone who would like to invest, especially if they've not invested in film before. Um, I don't directly approach them and say, do you want to invest in my movie? I said, do you know anyone? And it does seem to make them feel more you don't you don't just want me for my money you actually want me for my advice and contacts and sometimes that seems to work um but i think everyone's different right totally and every investor is different and what they want uh is different some are more interested in the experience some really want the return some want to be in the, the film festival experience and that's important to them so it, it's targeting the person uh, and making them feel comfortable with what you're doing and it seems like you do that very well um do you have a certain approach is to the investors when you're first meeting them how you talk to them any tips and advice for other filmmakers out there 
Well, I think in each film I had an investor who was super passionate about the project and about um, opening their network doors and, you know, hosting parties where we would present visuals and in a casual setting for 30 people. Um, and maybe you get one more person to invest. So I think, I think the best, um, tip I can say is find one person who's an investor who is really passionate about the project and wants to help open doors for you because you can't do it all alone. If you're trying to make a seven figure film. There you go. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you. Um, let's talk about your director then, Lydia uh, Dean Pilcher, who is just a fantastic director anyway. And she's worked on some some wonderful films as a producer as well, uh, as well as being director and exec producer on various others. How did you get her on board? How did you talk to her about, you know, this is the project next for you? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. Lydia and I were on a panel uh, together uh, post-Sundance mm. um, about female producers at NYU. And uh, there were five women on the panel. Lydia and I were two of them. And so that's how we initially met. Um, and we share a common passion for uh, telling kind of international stories and promoting women in front of and behind the camera. Um, so I, when I was interviewing directors, look, I interviewed at least 100 directors. I, I did interview yeah. Wow. I interviewed one man too. And he was like, yeah, so this isn't a real interview. Is it? And I was like, no, no, it is. I promise. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. Um, that's amazing. A hundred directors. Wow. You must've done so much research then to, to figure out who you wanted to speak to, or was it through your agent? How did that, those in meetings come about? No, I mean, that was all through research. You know, I researched who had directed Sundance hits or Toronto hits or, you know, the, the baseline for me was that you had to have directed a film that had some kind of success in the independent film world, especially being a this being a World War II period film. You know, I can't take the risk of a first time director. Um, and with Lydia specifically, she had co-directed with, with another woman um, a film called Radium Girls, which was a low budget World War One film about the Radium Girls. And mm -hmm. it, it hasn't even been released yet. I think it gets released in 2020. But I saw um, a cut of that and it, it impressed me with um, the ability to be part of a low budget uh period film, which, you know, is the biggest challenge. So when I was interviewing other directors, um, you know, they might have had a, a Sundance hit, but it was a very modern Sundance hit. And I wasn't sure if that would translate into, you know, a World War II low budget indie film. So that was really the decision for Lydia. That's really interesting, isn't it? How, um, as me as a director, I, I kind of don't want to be put in that box. You know, I've made a couple of horror films and I've just made a historical action film. And the original worry for me was when I'd made those couple of horror films was, right, that's it. I'm going to be put in that box and trying to sort of find my way out of that. So I wasn't just a horror director is really interesting. But when I look at it in depth and people go, well, we do want someone who's have a proven track record in horror because we've got this horror film. We want to make sure they understand the blood and how long that takes and how long the action takes in that and, and the getting the screams right and the, the jump scares. And if someone's done a period drama, they might not get, you know, the work as a horror director. Um, and I wanted to keep my options open and say, well, no, I don't want to just be put in a box. If that's okay, I'd, I want to do other films. Um, and it's quite interesting how it does work that you do get work based on your previous work. Right. And if someone has done a period film, it's like, well, 
great, you know how to do this period film. You understand the cars and how long they take and how people need to walk and look and act and how the cameras need to be. And yeah, that's, it is fascinating. Well, I think I try to think outside the box in certain job categories. And I think that's equally important. Like uh, I hired a cinematographer, uh, Robbie Baumgartner, who was, uh, you know, basically in the lighting world for big, big features, but didn't have a ton of DP credits. Um, and he did our film. And then his next job after was Midway, the $100 million Roland Emmerich film. And so I'm a big um, fan of taking people who are talented. I hired Kim Jennings, who was a, a top, top production designer, like Spider-Man, Selma, et cetera. But she'd never art directed and gave her that chance. And I, I firmly believe in that. We hired a, a um, female um, composer who'd only, you know, composed one film. So I think thinking outside the box is really important in this business. But, but I think for the director role, at least for me, the risk was too much, um, to give my investors of someone who maybe hadn't tackled given our budget, the genre. Okay. That's great. And she's done a fantastic job and yeah, hopefully very happy and proud of what, what you've, you've both achieved, but, uh, yeah, you should be. Um, it's great. It's really good. How was it working with her then as producer, but you're also acting in it was, uh, was that and difficult? Was that great? How was that experience? Yeah, I think it was great. I think that, um, you know, we worked on the film so long before we got to, I mean, I think it was probably six months before the cameras started to roll. Um, so making sure you see eye to eye on the character. I mean, that was certainly part of the discussions with the directors is to be upfront and say, look, I'm playing one of the three leads. And are you comfortable with that? And have you seen my previous work? Because if not, you need to see it and see if you like it. Cause I didn't want to bring on board a director who kind of is just stuck with that talent. It's very important that they're passionate and excited about it. So that started um, way back when. And I think if you're on the same page uh, when you hire someone, it makes the process a lot smoother. How do you work your time when you're on set and something like this then uh, with Liberty Occult to Spy when you're producing and acting, but now you've got a potential bigger team around you, even though it's still essentially low budget, as, as you called it. Um, are you still putting both hats on? You're jumping between the producing one minute, like say raising funds and then acting. That must kind of get in the way a little bit. Yeah, I think that is the biggest challenge and I haven't quite solved it <laughs> third film in, because they're very different hats and as you know you know like an acting hat you have to be in the moment and you have to access your emotions and the producing hat you have to shut down your emotions and be rational and think things through in a very headspace so they're completely opposite um functions so going back and forth i think I'm, I'm better at it third film in but it's something that's always always a challenge you know i have a lot of i have a son i have a six-year-old so my my mother-in-law left from oklahoma and became you know kind of stayed with my son and you know i wasn't in a position to be a full-time you know to be a mom in that time you know i had to go to budapest and shoot and so it's about managing your time when you're on set um, you know, and it was, it was for two months, seven days a week and, and just saying, okay, friends, okay, family, uh, you know, I will be back and I will be back and present in a very big way. But for these, this time on set shooting, I won't be. People don't really understand that, do they? When they go, well, sure, you just go home at, you know, 6 p.m. when work finishes. But on a film set, you can't do that. Right. And it's very difficult for us to have that different life you've got your home life and then when you're on set and you're making a film and it's very difficult to juggle them both especially as a, as a mother I imagine that's really difficult um it's hard enough you know with stepkids you know but for you that must have been very difficult and it's it must have been a, 
hard at times to 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 be away from that yeah and then try and jump back into I mean it. a lot of people will, will bring their children to set for me I didn't have the resources to you know have a full-time nanny around you know and also uh, you know it's just my choice I like to be like fully present with my son when I'm with him and I knew from the previous two films that you know um these the time and shooting is not really quality time. You know, when I was in Philly, he'd come down on the weekends, but I'd still be working and you'd have dinner and you'd put him to bed, but it wasn't that same. Um, you're not present in the way you are when you're not literally on set shooting. Uh, so, it, so it's very hard and a lot of people do it, but um, I'm a firm believer is you can't have everything all at once. And as long as, you know, I'm, I come from a very strong family where my mom worked full time and I knew she still loved me and she was always at every basketball game. So, so that, gave me the confidence to say I know my son knows I still love him and I will be there for him later that's so nice yeah and it, it's it's you kind of do have to do that and just make it clear I'm away for this time I'll be back um believe me I'm coming back um <laughs> what's it because uh, I find it difficult sometimes and it's we've not talked about this on the podcast before but the moment when you finish the film and everything's packed away and you kind of go back home but home's been carrying on without you. Yeah. It's kind of been doing its thing and getting used to you not being there. And then you have to jump back into that world again. And it takes a little bit of time and adjustment. And people don't talk about that enough, but it is really difficult. Yeah, I mean, I bring lots of presents and bribery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look what I got from uh, Romania and Hungary for you. Look at these little trinkets and toys. <laughs> yeah. I uh, bring and yeah. a stuffed animal from every place I travel and shoots me Budapest. So he has like more stuffed animals than than anyone. And my husband gets wine and Budapest spices and, you know, so that that's my strategy. <laughs> right. Yeah, probably the best way. That's all we can do, isn't it? Just sort of just be present when we can be present um and know that we we do have difficult jobs um but it's amazing what you've achieved you should be very proud i'm very proud of you you know you've you've put yourself out there you've gone there and you've learned how to to make films you've learned how to find investors and speak to them and raise money and sell films it's an incredible achievement you should be you are an inspiration for a lot of people out there but also female filmmakers and what you're doing as well by uh, working as teams with other filmmakers and really putting a stamp on that and getting your voice out there so well done thank you well, well thanks for having me on this podcast people can see uh liberté call to spy on the 6th of december at the whistler film festival if you're going anywhere near that um or if you're going there please do check this out what's the release strategy how can people see this film after that do you know yet well i know some things but i can't tell you <laughs> <laughs> i'll have to kill you <laughs> Right. Say we'll have a U.S. festival premiere um, news soon, and then um, we we do have some deals. So it will be coming to the U.K. Uh, in 2020. So uh, people, we have a Twitter, LibertéTheMovie.com, um, Instagram, all that, and that's where everything's posted for updates. There you go. Do go follow them there, uh, and uh, I will keep you posted as well when you can see that film in the U.K. and in the U.S. around the world, um, because this film needs to be seen. And you should go support it because independent film, and that's what we should do. That's why you're listening to this. You want to be a filmmaker? Go support them. Uh, that's what we do. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Honestly, really, really appreciate it. Anytime, and, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Um, being prepared is everything. You can make your indie film, but know who your audience is and get out there and do it. And remember, if you're lucky enough to do well and rise up, it's your duty to send that elevator back 
down. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening uh, to this week's Filmmakers Podcast. Go out there and make your film. Make it happen. Be inspired by Sarah. Be inspired by yourself because you can do it. And go out there and do it. Make your film. Write that script. Find that producer. Go to events and make your film. Make things happen. Till next Tuesday, we will see you. Take care. Thank you again, Sarah. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.